where we'll be going. Um, so it'd be helpful to have one Samuel chapter 8, 9, that kind of area open and we'll be skating back and forth through various sections of that. Um, but as a way in, um, uh, as an introduction to the thinking through this, um, I thought I'd share with you about my initial encounters with Facebook. So you could get a, an excellent fictional history of the rise of Facebook from the film The Social Network. Um, uh, it, I became aware of Facebook around 2006. I think it technically reached Australian unis at the end of 2005. But in 2006, in Australia, a lot of people said, if you heard about Facebook, get a fa- give, you know, I think maybe you had to get sent a Facebook account back then. That definitely was the case with Google. You had to be sent a Google account, I remember. Um, having checked out Facebook, people would check it out and then kind of go, huh, and then sort of gave up. <laughs> That's, that seemed to be the... Because initially, Facebook was kind of just like a Facebook. It was just like literally, there was Micah. Huh, you know, I went to school with Micah. There he is. He's listening to whatever you listened to back in 2006, and, um, and hi. Yeah. And you don't have, have like a feature like you could poke Micah, and then he'd just be notified, go, Mikey has poked, and, 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 and you'd leave a thing saying, hi, Micah. And then you'd, you'd go, oh, there's Maddie, she's on Facebook, there she is. Hi. It's kind of like LinkedIn, if you've ever had the, the, the misfortune. To, exactly, exactly. That's, um, uh, that's another word for LinkedIn. Um, there were profiles you could message people. People went around sort of finding people they went to school with, people they worked with, and then kind of went, huh. It was around 2008, partly in response to Twitter, I think, that Facebook then developed what was called the wall. And the wall is what you'd now know as central to Facebook, the, the, the doom stream of everybody's <laughs> consciousness and fears and fake news just sort of it began. It basically was a way that you could instead see what Michael was up to today and what Maddie was up to today and what they were saying to one another and then what Christine was up to and then what Christine's friend. And that's the, the modern version of Facebook. But from the very beginning, a feature of Facebook, which is the reason why I raise it, um, uh, uh, a feature of, of Facebook from the very beginning, because it had its origins in universities and college in the US, um, <laughs> was it was important to know people's relationship status. And so, uh, as part of creating a profile, you'd upload your photo, you'd put in your name, you'd probably say what you were listening to and what TV shows you liked and what college you went to, and then you'd say, are you single? Are you married? Are you engaged? Are you in a relationship or... Complicated. It's complicated. It's complicated. <laughs> That's right. It says so much, right? It's complicated. But what do you mean by that, the boomer asks? Well, it's, it's complicated. complicated. <laughs> That's what I mean. It just does capture so much. And you know what? When it comes to the question of Israel and the Lord and kingship... It's complicated. And really, that could be the the theme of this sermon before dinner this evening. It's complicated. (laughs) Because as we saw with Andy this morning, the response to the request for the kingship is a stern one in chapter 8 of 1 Samuel. You know, they say, give us a king like the nations. Samuel says, oh, really? You want a king like the nations? Let me tell you about it. And then he proceeds to give this great warning that you can't, anyone familiar with Hamilton can't hear now without thinking about it takes and it takes and it takes. Um, Talking about the king, um, like death, takes and takes and takes. Um, uh, it's, uh, it's, It's a negative thing. And yet, as we'll see, and as we know, because we worship King Jesus, right? Who's, who's David's greatest son, who's the Messiah. Well, we've just been seeing that kind of stuff with that behold. Uh, God planned and purposed to, to come and, and uh, in his son and be our king. So 
it's God's purpose to have a king, but it's sinful to ask for a king. So what's the deal with Israel, the Lord, and kingship? It's complicated. <laughs> so let's think about that, and that will be really our way in to, to tonight. First, let's think about the Lord as king versus kings like the nations. So that'll be our first tenet. The Lord as king versus kings like the nations. And then we'll secondly turn to think instead about the king the Lord has chosen. And we'll think about Saul. So the Lord is the king versus the king of the other nations. That's what Samuel's picking up on in chapter 8, right? So in, in, in 1 Samuel, Samuel chapter 8, they rightly pick up not only Samuel's age, but also the fact that history seems to be repeating itself with Samuel's kids being um, a worrisome bunch. And so Israel requests, um, I give us a king, verse 6 we have there, a king to lead us. They displeased Samuel, who prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to them, all the people are saying to you, It is not you they have rejected, they have rejected me as their king. They said back in verse 5, You're old, Samuel, your sons don't walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Or down at verse 19 there, uh, The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, We want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations, a king to lead us, to go out before us to battle, and to fight our battles for us. They request a king like the nations who will lead them, who will unite them, who will fight for them. And they're rebuked for that. They're rebuked by Samuel for that, right? Verse, um, uh, verse 7. The Lord told Samuel, listen to what the people are saying to you. It's not you they've rejected. They've rejected me as their king, as they have done since the day I brought them out of Egypt. Just like those grumbling Israelites in the wilderness. They're grumbling still even in the promised land, till this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. See the connection between wanting a king like the nations and worshipping other gods like the other nations. It's all part and parcel of a rejection of God. So they're doing this to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what this king who will reign over them will do. You want a king like the nations? <laughs> and you want a king like the nations who have the other gods, like the other nations' gods? Well, then here's what you're going to get. Just like the other nations' gods are no real gods at all, but are nothings at all that debase you and dehumanise you, so also he warns then this king, verses 10 to 18, this king will take, take your sons, take your daughters, take your wealth, take your horses, take, will uh, build a strong nation-state at the cost of your freedom and your dignity and your... Um, uh, There'll be so much servitude that will come into building the monarchy um, industrial complex of equivalent of the Bronze Age, right? And yet, having even heard that, are you sure? Here's what it will mean. Here's what will happen. Here's what you'll lose. Here's the price you'll pay for it. Are you sure? Yes, we want a king, just like the nations. Then we'll be strong. <laughs> then we'll be safe. Then we'll be secure. And then they, they seem to get the king just like that. In chapter 9, verse 1, we get introduced to this Saul, son of Kish, um, as one who is impressive, verse 2, without equal among the Israelites, a head taller than all the others. Here, then, is this impressive, handsome... The word ha uh, handsome there could mean, uh, um, could mean uh, chosen. It has that echo of that. That's one of those words, you know, how even in English, words can mean several different things. So it could be, well, here's the king like the one you've chosen. Here he is. Yeah. 
into chapter 10 there, because chapter 9 we'll get back to it. It's a bit of a strange chapter chasing after donkeys in the, the countryside. It's, a, it's an odd and peculiar kind of plot twist after the, um, the defiant response and rebuke of chapter 8. But when finally we come back to Samuel and Saul and the kingship, we again get this theme of the rebuke of the kingship. Look at 10 verse 17. Samuel summoned the people Israel to the Lord at Mizpah and said to them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I brought Israel up out of Egypt and I delivered you from the power of Egypt and all the kingdoms that oppressed you, but you have now rejected your God who saved you from all your calamities and distresses. And you have said, No, set a king over us. So now present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your clans. It's a little bit like the Israelites in the wilderness, right? The Lord had saved them from oppression, under Pharaoh, from slavery under Pharaoh, with a mighty outstretched arm, the language is used, rescued them to freedom, and then they go, oh, if only we could go back to Egypt. Remember the cucumbers back in Egypt? <laughs> we were never hungry back in Egypt. It's like, you guys forgot? Have you forgotten? And so similarly, God has fought for you, just as we saw this morning, chapter 7. The Lord fought for Israel, rescued them from the Philistines and gave them peace. The Lord is their king and the Lord fights for them. And it's like, oh, but if only we had a king like the Philistines have. That would be better. If we had a king like Dagon's king, if we had a king like the Philistine king, then we'd be mighty. Like, sorry, what? Like, can't you remember what just... There's this uh, ignorance of worldliness, a forgetfulness that is part of, part of uh, sin in every age and every generation. That little rebuke section there in chapter 10, verse 17 to 19, <clears throat> leads up then to the, the setting apart of... Saul and revealing him to Israel at Mizpah. And it's interesting the way it's done. It's done by lot. There's sort of some kind of casting of lots, casting of dice, rolling of dice sort of thing. Um, a, a, a method of chance selection, trusting in God's ruling over even chance from verse 20 onwards. But it's set up, it has a drama about it that's almost a bit scary because a, a, a recent version of this same kind of event was in the punishment of Achan and his family for the taking of, um, of things devoted for destruction in the whole invasion of the chosen land and, and the, the capture of Ai in, um, in Joshua chapter, um, chapter 7. They're saying, like, who was it who has led Israel into failure? Who was it who sinned against the Lord's command? It was Achan and his family. How will we find that out? By casting lots and slowly uh, narrowing it down. Which tribe, which clan, which family, which person? And so there's a certain ominous drama. Hang on a second. Is getting a king a good thing <laughs> or is getting a king a punishment? Is it a bad thing? There's this, again, this ominous weight. So much so that perhaps that's why Saul is hiding in this chapter. He's hiding amongst the gear, uh, perhaps because he's wary of, of going, oh, what's going to happen? Like, you know, Because he's already aware, as we'll see in chapter 9, that God has set him apart for a special purpose. And he's going, maybe this special purpose isn't such a good purpose. I don't like this purpose anymore. I'm out on the purpose. I'm going to go and stay with the bags over here. Um, (laughs) There's a certain nervousness. It's complicated, in other words. Chapter 12, again, we get um, uh, as as another moment in, in reaffirming and publicly establishing Saul as king. Again, it's not just a rosy, cheerful occasion. Samuel is something of a downer when you invite him to like a public you know, ceremony. You don't quite know what he's going to say. You know, the, the mind is saying, Look, we, guess we should, really should ask Samuel to speak, Prophet Samuel to speak. It would be weird <laughs> not to ask him. 
you know how he gets. Yeah, I know. Can you ask him? Look, I'll try, but you know, just give him some talking points. Yeah, but you know how he is with talking points. It's a little bit like, so you get Samuel in here, it's a special occasion, and it's, and it's like, oh, what's he going to say? Well, it's again a bit like that in chapter 12 here, right? Samuel said to all Israel, I have listened to everything you said to me and have set a king over you. Now you have a king as your leader. Yeah, now you've got it. There it is. You asked for it, and now you have it. Now, let's go back in time a little. Let me remind you of my leadership over you. And he, he says to them, Good, look, can you, did I ever take from you? Did I ever take your money? Did I ever take your kids as slaves? Did I ever oppress you or abuse you? He, he kind of lists through about his own integrity. It's a bit like what the Apostle Paul does with the Ephesian elders you know, many centuries later. And they say, no, he didn't do that. Yeah, so when God was ruling through his prophetic word, uh, they were treated with, with dignity, respect, as, as brothers and sisters, equals with the prophet, fellow worshippers of the Lord. So, so, so he first he says to them, look, you testify against me. Got any problems? No, no problems. They can agree with his integrity. So then he says, okay, well, now the Lord's going to testify against you in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 12. And the, Samuel said to the people, it is the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron and brought your forefathers up out of Egypt now then, stand here because I am going to confront you with evidence before the Lord as to all the righteous acts performed by the Lord for you and your fathers. And the, the condemnation is to say, let me tell you yet again what God did for you when he was your king. He was your ruler. He was your God. He was the one who kept you safe. He was the one who kept you united. He is the one who protected you from your enemies. He is your king. God's your king. And the prophet here is just the mouthpiece for your king. Yeah? All you need is a prophet to tell you what the king says to you. And let me testify against you for your sinfulness for not trusting God who is sufficient. Yeah? And so recounts the history of Israel as many parts of the histories and the law and the Psalms do and the sermons in the New Testament do again and again and again. And then verse uh, 12 there. But when you saw Nahash, king of the Ammonites, was moving against you, this is now in recent history, you said to me, no. We want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God was king. And now here is the king you've chosen, the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. Are you happy? Then there's a terrifying, miraculous sign given this thunderstorm at a time of year when a thunderstorm is not expected. It's like, again, a warning judgment moment, like the choosing of lots was ominous. This is ominous, yeah. And then a final... Um, restoration and warning again it's complicated right don't be afraid verse 20 samuel replied you've done all you've done evil you've done all this evil not trusted the lord rejected the lord asked for a king like the nations and yet do not turn away from the lord but serve the lord with all your heart don't turn away after useless idols and the kings that idol worshippers trust in they can do you no good nor can they rescue you because they're useless for the sake of the great name of the Lord, he will not reject his people because the Lord was pleased to make you his own. As for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. And I'll teach you the way that is good and right, but be sure to fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. Consider what great things he's done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. So Israel, the Lord, kingship, it's a sinful thing. It's an evil thing. It's a rejection of God. It's godless. It's in the same family as idol worship. It's a useless business. The Lord's the king. The kingdom of Israel is the kingdom of God. It's God's kingdom. They're his people. Um, 10 verse 1 stresses that. It's, it's his inheritance. 
his inheritance, his people, chosen for himself. In fact, he's only sparing them, what we just read then, for his name's sake, for his glory. He's pledged himself to them. So now it's part of his glory to preserve and save them. And so that's a, a, that's a really important thing. That's the first heading is important. And as I've suggested to you, the importance of the prophet is a real key to understanding this, this, these weird history books in the Bible. Um, if you like, look at, the, look at the ancient political science of Israel and the importance of the prophet as a kind of, to use modern language, a kind of separation of powers. Even if there is a king, even if there is a judge or so on, there's then a prophet who speaks from outside of the government and yet has an authority from beyond to rebuke and confront. It's not a divine son of God, um, human pharaoh who has you know, total prerogative. No, there's a rule of law above the king, the governor, the judge, the warlord, the prophet. And you get that all through, right? You, you get it here with Samuel, and, and that'll, we'll see this in the, in the next few chapters, um, with Samuel versus Saul. You see it with Nathan and David, don't you? We won't look at that during our time, but same thing. A prophet comes in, comes right up to the mighty king and says, you are the man, and confronts and brings judgment upon, upon the king and so on, right? So there's this important place for the prophet as the mouthpiece of the Lord, like Moses, like Samuel, the word of the Lord came to all Israel, 1 Samuel 4. Uh, 4 verse 1 or at the end of 1 Samuel 7 or you know Samuel would go throughout Israel bringing the word of the Lord to a united and peaceful people Israel was founded by a promise of a word the word of promise to Abraham uh, Israel was gathered in the Exodus by the words of the prophet Moses and in fact Moses says in Deuteronomy 4 there's no other nation quite like this one this is a nation to whom the living God talks not just a nation that sets up statues as symbols of some tribal power or uh, uh, regional god or spirit. No, this is, this is the nation that the creator of all nations has chosen to speak to and lead and guide. Yeah? Even the great warrior leader, Joshua, when he's outside preparing for the invasion of the promised land, he meets a, a, an angelic figure and says, are you on our side or on their side? And what does, what does that angelic figure say? I'm not on either side. I'm, I serve the army of the Lord. Yeah. Ultimately, Joshua is not the great king or ruler of warlord of Israel any more than Samuel, any more than Saul, any more than king, king David or King Solomon. It's the Lord God, the creator, who's the king of all the earth, who's the king of Israel, his chosen ones. Now, I might just stretch that just a little further. Now, this is kind of going beyond the explicit word of Scripture to, I guess, maybe Christian worldview thought. Um, but there is, I mean, I mentioned like separation of powers as a thing you can kind of notice. Even in the old, ancient, ancient Old Testament, judges, priests, prophets, kings, elders, yeah. Uh, that, that's a stream that runs through, we notice it in the Old Testament, and runs through into Christian thinking about government and leadership through the centuries right up to our day, that there has been an openness to things like a, uh, a law that even kings are accountable to, for example, um, or a difference between some degree of judicial and ministerial and legislative leadership, these kinds of differences, yeah? Um, or in church leadership, um, uh, Protestant theology about church 
is careful to stress that church leadership is not legislative. It's ministerial and judicial only. It is, in other words, it's saying what God has already said and then making rulings where necessary about church discipline. It's not coming up with new rules, coming up with new laws, binding people's conscience with new ways, but it's calling people uh, to God's authority alone. Yeah. So Saul uh, is put forward as this king that they asked for. In fact, the name Saul means asked for. Yeah, you got what you wanted. Uh, that's, that's what Saul means, asked for. And in some ways, he is like the other nations. He's a head taller than the others, as we noticed in 9 verse 2. Or again, in 10 verse 23, a similar kind of thing is observed there. Um, 10 verse 23. I'm struggling to see in the slide. They ran and brought Saul out, and as he stood among the people, he was a head taller than the others. So he's impressive, like a, a king of the other nations is impressive. He's described several times, as we've seen, as your king that you wanted, the king you asked for. Yeah, there's an emphasis on it being a result of the people's request. And actually, even on Saul's lips himself, if you read carefully through these chapters, you'll notice sometimes in his dialogues with Samuel, he'll say, hey, Samuel, could you please pray to the Lord your God for me? For me and my people? <laughs> There's again this weird worldliness in Saul that he kind of, kind of betrays himself with his words. He's not the Lord my God, as I am the king of God's people. No, no, he's the Lord Samuel's God, as I'm the king of Saul's people. Yeah. But it's complicated. So let's secondly think about the sense in which Saul is also the, the king that the Lord chooses, right? Because in chapter 8, the Lord still said, the Lord could have said to Samuel, rebuke the people, refuse to give him a king. Couldn't he? He could have said that. He doesn't do that though, does he? In verse 7, in verse 9, in verse 21, 22, he says, obey the people. Obey the Lord in the Lord's command to obey the people. Give them what they want. So, so God... Uh, agrees to the sinful request. It's complicated. Yeah? Chapter 9 uh, adds to the complicatedness with a really odd chapter, a long, odd chapter of a country kid and his servant boy hunting for donkeys. <laughs> and they don't, they're just kind of looking for donkeys. And then they go, oh, the servant says, oh, maybe we should try there. Maybe we should ask the local seer if he can help us find the donkeys or tell us what we need to do. And, and it's just this long, weird... It, I think we're meant to feel like it's this bizarre gear shift from war and battle and victory to suddenly looking for donkeys in the hillside. <laughs> like, what? Samuel doesn't get mentioned for paragraph after paragraph after mentions of kings, mentions of, of Philistines, none of these things. It's, it's donkeys in the hillsides, right? And yet, at the centre of it is this man, this handsome, or could mean chosen, tall, impressive country kid. Yeah. And in this peculiar chapter, we, I think we're supposed to notice the Lord is at work in peculiar details. So, chapter 9, verses um, uh, 6, 7 and 8, there's a, a strange little um, coincidence that takes place there. The servant says, look, in this town, there's a man of God. He's highly respected and everything he says comes true. Let's go there now. And as they go into the town, they say, oh, is this the, is the prophet around? He, you know what? He just happens to be around. He's just arrived. If you run ahead, you'll just catch him. 
Um, and, the, and, and Saul goes, oh, we don't have any money to pay him. Oh, I found, I just found 20 bucks. Here it is, we can pay him with this. There's this string of like little just so, just so happened moments that a careful reader might be noticing. Is, is God at work sending these donkeys loose? Is God at work sending the servant and, and this, this impressive young man in this direction? Is God at work that the timing works out just so? And turns out I did have an extra 20 bucks in my wallet. And is, is there a string of these little coincidences playing their way out? And yes, the Lord is at work here. For we then get finally a flashback in chapter 9 and verse 15. Okay, we're told the day before Saul came, 9.15, the Lord had revealed this to Samuel. About this time tomorrow, I will send you a man from the land of Benjamin, anoint him leader over my people Israel. He'll deliver my people from the hand of the Philistines. I've um, looked upon my people and their cry has reached me. Okay, so the Lord has, is at work and has chosen this one. Well, notice a couple of things. Again, it's complicated. First, he's not called a king. It's complicated. He's anointed, and that's a kingish thing, but you can anoint priests and other things. He's called a leader. It's a more general term. So that's interesting. He's not called a king by the Lord or by Samuel for quite some time. The first time he gets called a king is by the people later on. Not, not, so that's interesting. Secondly, notice again, this is for my people, the Lord's people. The Lord is the king. It's his people that he's chosen this leader. Yeah. And interestingly, verse 17 um, uh, one of the commentaries I was reading on this uh, says that, that, that what he'll do for the people, um, that word govern there in verse 17, could perhaps better be translated restrain my people. That it could have the overtone of saying, my sinful people are running after trying to emulate every other god and find merely worldly security. This leader will rescue them and also steer my people back to a more faithful path. Yeah. Just a couple of interesting things to note. Not like the nations, in other words. You get a leader, you get a king, if you want to call him that, but he's not going to be like the nations. It's the Lord's people, the Lord's chosen, who's not, the Lord's not even calling a king. Okay, into chapter 10. Samuel does a secret anointing move in 10 verse 1. Samuel took a flask of oil. That's what anointing is, a, a kind of a marking out someone as special, priest, king, or whatever, uh, usually with, with oil as, as a symbolic marker. And that's what a Messiah is, an anointed one. He messiahs Saul. He Christs Saul. He anoints him, right? That's what Messiah or Christ means, anointed one. So he messiahs uh, Saul. He anoints him and then kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you leader, again, not king, leader, over the Lord's inheritance? Again, not king, leader. Uh, not his kingdom, the Lord's kingdom. Yeah, And we get a promise of a string of signs. We won't go into that, but each of the signs kind of reminds us of the weird donkey adventures in a little way um, and also reminds us often of things back in the book of Genesis, things like Rachel's tomb, um, Bethel, um, places that were the beginnings of the promises of God and his workings with his people. So there's a, something special is happening, in other words. Um, but the climax of this string of signs that Samuel says will take place uh, is that the spirit will rush upon Saul. Let's have a look at that verse 6, 10 verse 6. Um, the spirit of the Lord will come upon you in power 
and you'll prophesy with these other prophets and you'll be changed into a different person. And once these signs are, signs are fulfilled, do whatever your hand finds to do, for God is with you. It's, it's, it meant to evoke with you that, that judges are like that. Israel cries out for help and then a spirit comes upon a judge and the, the, the evil fat oppressor is stabbed secretly or Samson grabs the donkey's jawbone and slays the many. It's that, uh, the spirit rushes in and then rescue is at hand. That, that's the kind of the idea. You'll be transformed though, we're told in verse 6. And then uh, verse 9, we're told that as Saul turned to leave Samuel, God did change his heart. God is at work in him, preparing this one, for this is the Lord's chosen leader, yeah, who will bring rescue. 10 verse 24 then, back down to the end of, again, talking to Israel now and revealing Saul to Israel as a whole. They've cast by lots. They've found Saul. He's hiding in the, amongst the gear because he's nervous about whether this is a good thing or not to be um, chosen out as special. He's... Um, uh, but then Samuel said to all the people, do you see this man the Lord has chosen? The Lord has chosen. There is no one like him among all the people. And then we finally get the word king, but it's the people who decide that he's king. Long live the king, they say. And then uh, Samuel explained to the people the regulations of the kingship and he wrote them down on a scroll and deposited it before the Lord. Samuel dismissed the people. It's complicated. There's an ambiguity in the presentation. What kind of leader does the Lord intend Saul to be? What kind of kingdom is the Lord concerned with? This rules of the kingdom, the matters or the justice or the righteousness of the kingdom in 1025. What, what, what kingdom? Whose kingdom exactly? We get similarly this mention of the kingdom back in verse 16. Uh, where Saul didn't mention to his uncle anything about Samuel and what he said about the kingship. Or 11 verse 14, again, this mention of the kingship. But whose kingship? Whose kingdom? Is it the Lord's that Saul is a leader in? Or is it Saul's? Or is it, well, complicated? Both, kind of. Yeah? Chapter 11 then, Saul, um, uh, we, up to this point, have had a lot of delays in action, hesitation, passivity. Saul is impressive to look at. But when you see him in action, he's something else entirely. It's like the guy comes out into the, 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 the sports field with all the gear, all the newest gear, and perhaps, you know, pretty kind of some good some manscaping has gone on, you know, sort of ripped and great hair and whatever else. But then when you actually the ball comes into play, it's, yeah, well, you know, that, that looks good and has all the gear. <laughs> but not so great when it actually comes to the, um, to the action. Saul's so, so, so a bit like that. Like, he's impressive, he's tall, but, you know, when he's looking for the donkeys, it's this young man who's going, let's try this, let's try that. And Saul's like, oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> he's just kind of following this young guy around, you know, sort of letting someone else take the lead for him. When there's, they're, they're choosing apart by a lot, he's off hiding, as we've mentioned several times, and has to be run and dug up out amongst the gear in the storeroom or something, wherever he is. Um, <laughs> There's this implicit instruction in chapter 10, verses 5 to 8, where Samuel says, you are anointed as the leader. You will rescue God's people. This will happen, and this will happen, and this will happen. And then you'll come to the place where Philistines have an outpost, a garrison amongst the Lord people. What are they doing there? Didn't Samuel rescue them in chapter 7? What are they doing now? They've, they've kind of worked their way back in. It's a bit like your neighbour suddenly having a barbecue in your backyard. It's like, what are you doing in my backyard? <laughs> 
Want a sausage? It's like, no, I want you to get out of my backyard. So, so the Philistines are having a barbecue in their backyard. And so he's saying, go, all this, all these signs will happen, 10 verses 5, 6, 7, 8. And then the Spirit of God will rush on you like it rushed upon Samson. And Samson had his beefs with the Philistines. So do whatever the Lord gives you to do. Well, you'd think that that would mean grab your jawbone or equivalent and strike down the Philistines in this outpost. But when the signs actually get fulfilled in chapter 10, and he prophesies like one of the prophets, and he meets the people, and they, you know, all these things, and then the Spirit comes upon him, he goes home. <laughs> it's just like... So, so is that it? <laughs> is, that, is that it? And a lot of the responses in chapter 10, again, we don't quite have the time to read them all, but it's, it's a lot of like... Uh, yeah. There's even a saying, like an old Israelite saying. It's like, um, it's like if someone said, "So we've we've got." Um, I mean, what's an unlikely? Without being rude, and we could pick someone here would be an unlikely. Let, let's say, sorry if you love ballet, Nick, but let's just say you don't love ballet, right? And, and if, if there was a saying like, "Is Nick one of the ballerinas?" You know, it's like, yeah, I don't think so. But there's a saying in ancient Israel: "Is Saul one of the prophets?" It's just like, is it really? Is, is, you know, that doesn't sound right. It's, it's just sore. That doesn't fit. It's, it's this perplexed kind of, is, is Nick one of the ballerinas? Maybe it would be great, mate. I don't want to discourage you. <laughs> you go for it. Um, uh, it would be ballet dancer, wouldn't it? Ballerina, because ballerinas. Ballerino, do you say? My sister's a ballerina. Oh, did ballet. Okay, so there you go. Oh, Challenge. Go for it, mate. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I have a chance, yeah. <laughs> So I was talking to Nick Micah, and he said he wants to be a ballet dancer, and I was just like a bit, is Saul one of the prophets? <laughs> do, do you know what I mean? I know, you know what I'm saying? Right. A bit later on, they're kind of like going like, and, and who is this guy? And there's grumblers at the end of chapter 10. Who is this guy? Is he really going to be our guy? Come on. You know, where's Benjamin, son of Kish, whatever. Go back to the donkeys. Um, so he, he, he's impressive, but he's passive in another strange way. And even when we then get this drama in chapter 11... Um, people don't think to ask him, first of all. <laughs> they get threatened by this Nahash guy and their first instinct at the chart start of chapter 11 is to go, oh, here's this enemy from the other nations. Maybe It's almost like they're saying, well, maybe you could be the king for us like the other nations. Chapter 11, verse 1, Nahash the Ammonite went up to besiege Jabesh Gilead and all the men of Jabesh said to him, make a treaty with us and we'll be subject to you. It's like, okay, well, you... We need a king like the other nations. Maybe you can be that king. It's pretty wretched. They don't even think to go, let's call out to the Lord. They don't even think to go, let's call out to Saul in 11 verse 3. In fact, as they try to see if they may get some help, news reaches Gibeah of Saul, verse 4. But no one still goes to tell Saul about it. (laughs) The news reaches them in, in Saul's town and they go, well, that's a bummer. We're in trouble. And they weep. <laughs> and then, even then, Saul has to say, hey, what are you guys all talking about? Because he's gone from donkeys to oxen. He's now out in the field with oxen. And he's kind of coming in, just doing some farming. He goes, what are you, what's going on, guys? Has something happened? And they go, oh, I guess we should tell him. <laughs> is Nick one of the ballerinas? Is Saul one of the prophets? Is he going to save us? It's like, well, what's, what's, well, is this guy going to be any help to us? Um, and, then, uh, and then finally, though, after all this... Uh, complicatedness and, and passiveness, reluctance even, um, from Saul, finally he springs to action. And like a, a holy rage comes upon him. Again, it's very Samson-like. Um, 
Uh, when Saul heard these words, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him in power and he burned with anger and he took a pair of oxen and cut them into pieces and sent them to pieces. Well, now it's not Samson anymore. Now it's that grotesque story at the end of Judges, which was also in the region of Jabesh Gilead. Uh, it's, it's again invoking that, that chaos and, and wildness of the period of Judges. He cuts up the oxen and sends it throughout Israel as if saying, this is what will happen to you if you don't come to the call of Saul and his rally to protect Israel. Um, and so the people come fearfully and the God, the Lord himself is at work in them, striking fear in their hearts. The fear of the Lord, terror of the Lord fell upon the people, verse 7. And he mustered them together and there's victory. Finally, we see in chapter 11, uh, Saul springing into action, uh, spirit coming upon him, this judges-like episode. And then at, after the victory, he is recognised, publicly crowned, as king. Yeah, and this is uh, at the very end of chapter 11, this day of good news, this day of gospel. Uh, Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal and there reaffirm the kingship. And so all the people went to Gilgal and confirmed Saul as the king in the presence of the Lord, and they sacrificed fellowship offerings before the Lord. So he is the great king, the appointed king, the king the Lord chose. And in chapter 12, the speech on that occasion. Yeah, they've chosen this one, verse 13. The Lord has given them this one, verse 13. And so they have an opportunity to be blessed, verse 14. Now here is the king, verse 13. You've chosen the one you asked for. See, the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey him and do not rebel against the commands and, uh, and if both you and the king who reigns over you follow the Lord your God, good. There's an opportunity for blessing under this appointed king. But if they don't obey, verse 15, verse 25, there's the risk of judgment. So, sinful to ask for king, king like the nations, if you're rejecting the Lord. But it's a blessing that God has chosen to use in spite of their sin. He has made a way for a king unlike the nations. A king who fears the Lord as they ought to fear the Lord. And in doing this, he's actually tapping back into um, something spoken many, many years before in the time of Moses. So I'm going to give you a break from me talking, and I want to send you back, and again, just little groups, read to one another from Deuteronomy chapter 17 to read about probably when Samuel talks about the, the righteousness of the kingdom... Probably something like this was probably in mind. Deuteronomy chapter 17, from verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Just, just read that. Um. I'm 
So here we, here we have a king unlike the kings of the other nations, right? Here we have a description of what a king will look like once they've entered into the land. He'll just be like one of you. Yeah? Won't be some outsider, some um, alien oppressor, but also won't be an insider who is lifted up until they forget that they're one of you and set themselves over you as different than you. No, no, just one of you, just one of your brothers and sisters who sits under the law, under the prophet, under the word of God, who is a minister of the people and a minister of God, you know, and should read and write out and dwell upon. You know, it's like the Psalms, isn't it? The law of the law. They are bound by, in that sense, like I was saying about uh, Protestant church leadership, emphasising the fact that church leaders should be ministerial and judicial, not legislative. There's a sense in which central to even Israelite kingship in the first place is ministerial. You should... Uh, reflect God's words and enact God's words, not your own will and ego and agenda. Now we have that in Australia, we have our Prime Minister and our Ministers of Parliament. Um, that in the first place, though, is reflecting uh, King Charles III, that they're ministers of the King. Um, uh, that they, that's why we, we don't have a King locally, but we have a Prime Minister who is, serves, first of all, the King on our behalf. Um, God is the king, though, <laughs> above King Charles III or above David or above Saul or above any, any king in God's kingdom. And that even the king themselves needs to be, in a sense, yet again, a minister, a servant, merely a servant. Jesus says very similar things, doesn't he, to this? In Mark chapter 10, he says, uh, uh, you shouldn't be like the other nations who leaders lord it over them, yeah, and who make everyone else subject to them. Instead, whoever wants to be first should be servant of all, yeah? Just even like the Son of Man himself, even God come to earth, didn't come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many, yeah? Mark chapter 10, 42 to 45. It's in keeping with this. The, the king is merely a servant of God, but in a real sense, even a servant of the people also. That you're here to serve their interests as God's people. God's interests and their interests, yeah? So that's the, the first key in resolving this it's complicated that the kind of king they're getting that Moses anticipated would come is just a different order of king to the kind of king they were thinking they needed in 1 Samuel 8. So they needed to be rebuked for what they were asking for, but still permitted to have a very different version, um, just entirely different framework or paradigm, if you like, for what that kingship might be. But there's another sense why it's complicated, and that is we can see very clearly from our perspective, and we'll see this more tomorrow morning, uh, because of God's larger plan to prepare for the Messiah 
to come. God's larger plan of salvation history is for the Saviour King, Messiah in the line of David, who will be God the Son, become a human being to deliver God's salvation perfectly, not mediating God's word through prophets and human kings, but being the word become flesh to bring God's rule directly. Yeah. As early as Genesis 49, we'll look at that tomorrow, we get a prophecy about how in the line of David will come a scepter and a rule in Genesis 49. In uh, the Judges, we get this uh, recognition that in the era without a king, everyone just does what they see fit. And he talked about that this morning. Judges 19.1, Judges 21.25. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. In 1 Samuel 2, verse 10, as Hannah prays, uh, and, and praises and worships the Lord for his hearing her prayer, she looks ahead to anointed one, a horn of salvation that will be raised up, a strong uh, force God will raise up for the good of his people. So there's that bigger picture, right, where we know that God will and is planning to bring him, not like the nations, but a saviour king from the Lord. Now, I'll finish with this observation. We won't get into the failures of Samuel, just I'm just aware of the time, so we're not going to be able to smash through all these chapters. Spoiler alert, Samuel fails. He's not the king. We might touch on that tomorrow morning. But yeah, look, if you, if you haven't seen 1 Samuel by now, you know, you probably don't deserve to not know the spoiler. Hey, actually, by the way, did you know there's a, there's a, like, um, a TV series that is, like, is a reimagining of Saul and David and stuff? It's, I think it's called Kings. It has the, um, uh, the guy who plays Saul plays the kind of main evil angel in that American Gods TV show. Craggy faced guy with the black hair. Is in John Wick as well? Yeah, is, he's, is he's the, guy, guy? The, the guy. Yeah, the yeah, guy who has the, uh, the continental, the head of the continental. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, he yeah. plays Saul, and it's a younger, but it's all like in a modern day kind of retelling. It's quite cool. Anyway, check it out. Um, but anyway, what I'm saying is spoilers. Yes, Saul fails. <laughs> um, so we won't look at that. So I'm going to finish with this instead to say. As you're reading from the Old Testament to the New, there's a few ways that you read the Bible as a Christian book. One is just to go keep reading the story. Dot, dot, dot. Every Old Testament book, chapter, section is, but that's not all. To be continued. Tune in next week, right? <laughs> because if it's a happy ending, like the end of Ruth, even Ruth ends with a genealogy, doesn't it? It says, but that's not all. There's more to come. If it's a sad ending, like Lamentations or Habakkuk, it's like, but that's not all. I will wait upon the Lord and see what he will bring about in his timing. Yeah? Um, and so you wait to see where the story will go. That's one way to read the whole Bible as Christian scripture, is to see it as part of the larger story. Another way is to look for prophecies that get fulfilled. So when there's a promise, when will the promise get fulfilled? And, and sometimes those are prophecies about Jesus and his coming. There's a, another type of promise, which is a pattern promise, often called typology, which is like where there's, um, I don't know, like the temple is like a pattern promise. The whole temple, the sacrifices, the priests, we as Christians know that in a sense is one huge big blueprint. Um, has has um, uh, Zoolander dropped out of like consciousness? Are you guys aware of the Zoolander yeah. movie? It's dropped out. It has a bit. That's really sad. I won't give you that illustration anyway. A second for ants. Like one Justin Bieber scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Is this a school for ants? ants? That's what I'm talking about. If you know, if you know, you know. It's a little bit like that when you look at Moses in the tabernacle. What is this? <laughs> it needs to be at least three times this big. Um, when Solomon builds the temple, when he, the great King Solomon, builds this glorious golden temple, that's what he prays. His very first dedication prayer is, what is this? A center for ants? You know, God lives in heaven. Heaven is his throne, the earth is his footstool. He doesn't dwell in a house built by humans. Um, and so, so these are a pattern of things to come, right? They're a pattern that looks ahead. Um, uh, and so David is a pattern as the king of the Messiah to come. That's another way of Old Testament to new. The king um, is a pattern of the great king. But a final way, well, there's probably more, but one other way is when you notice these um, like kind of instabilities, like unstable elements to use my bad and probably inaccurate chemistry or whatever, that, um, uh, that, uh, that it's like uh, there's bits that, that don't hang together because they, they're not the final fulfilment. So I suppose like the temple, the temple is where God is, but God's everywhere. God's in heaven. That's a, there's an instability. Moses, when he builds the tabernacle, is told, do it according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Hebrews picks up on that. There's an, it, like God's in the tent, but he's not in the tent. It's, 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 it's doomed to crumble, that, that model as a, as a thing. Uh, God, Israel is God's chosen people, but he's the God of all the nations, and he wants to bless the Gentiles, is another one of those kind of instabilities. And, and here's another one that we've looked at during our whole time today. This, the Lord is the king, the king is the king. How, how does this hang together? And then that, that, that tension, that kind of instability is, is built into the Old Testament. And you're meant to feel it. We see another one in the section we won't look at in chapter 15 about worship. Is worship sacrifices or is worship an obedient heart? You, know, it's a, 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 you get this, this kind of push and shove between the two until you get Jesus who offers up himself in his obedient heart as the sacrifice. For us, and then it gets resolved. In the same way, is, is the human king the chosen king? Is, is God the king? Well, when you have David prophesy in Psalm 110 that the Lord will say to the Lord of David, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. A king who will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek, Psalm 110. Um, that we see that, oh, actually, you know what? The Lord will be the king in the divine human king, Jesus. And that's when this gigantic kind of um, tension finally gets resolved um, uh, in, in the gospel itself. Um, where, who is the Lord? The Lord or the Messiah? Well, the answer is both. And that's what we see in Philippians. Jesus, very nature God, didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of a servant, being found in human likeness, yeah? And in appearance like a man, but came obedient to death, even death on the cross. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name. A king definitely not like any other nations. A king over all the nations. A king who will make God's people safe forevermore. Yeah? Christ, the heavenly ruler over all the nations of the earth. Yeah? And so that's why then our attitude, uh, first of all, to any leadership should be to uh, see it as nothing compared to Jesus. That's the first thing. Christian's heart, our ultimate security, our ultimate hope, our ultimate allegiance is to King Jesus, who is our rescuer, who is our hope, who, is our, who has our best interests in heart, far above any nation or parent or husband or wife or mentor figure or whatever. Yeah, The Lord is my king. Yeah. 
And that then should mean my attitude, and this again comes back to the Christian worldview, even the kinds of structures that Christians should seek to build are ones that have a very relativised attitude to any human power. Yeah? Even the great kings and prime ministers of the world are just people. Yeah? We have to have, preserve that attitude. Even our preachers and our leaders and our missionaries are just people, just one of your brothers, just one of your sisters. Yeah? Even the great ones of this world, we need to preserve in our own attitudes and relationships, but also build structures. You know, the healthiest Christian structures are ones that give limited power, that separate powers. That, uh, there's a sense in which, not to baptise a political system, but where things like parliaments and republics and federalising and uh, variations of Presbyterianism and synodical governments, these things, there's something very Christian about them because they, they uh, diffuse power. Do you see what I mean? Um, so, so Anglicans originally didn't have synods, um, but increasingly realised it made sense to, to actually give people power in the Anglican system. Um, because they looked at other churches that did that and went, well, that, that reflects a Christian attitude to have that. Yeah? And so from our personal lives, right through into, in a sense, our attitude to political matters, uh, that, that, that sense that the Lord is the king and Jesus is the king um, should do its work in us. When we get frightened, as Israel were justly, understandably frightened in their day, um, as we get worried in an unstable world, or in the church, when we feel like we're losing you know, some purchase on culture and influence and not being evangelistically effective, it is so tempting to, to flock to, whether it's some nutcase YouTuber who is bonkers, but they, they're sure they're right. And so we just chew up hours and hours of this junk from somebody because they're right and they're strong. Or a, we vote in a political leader who's a maniac but is strong and a leader and we rally around them, yeah? And we can even do that in churches that actually a lot of power goes to ungodly people but who are strong, yeah? Mm. Whereas when we're strong in the Lord and rest in him, then hopefully we can be um, less likely to give our hearts and our minds and give away power to those uh, who shouldn't be given it. Yeah. I'll finish there. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our King Jesus. We bow before him as the one we serve as servants of Christ, <laughs> but we serve as he served us. That's amazing. The king greater than any other king is our servant king. And we delight in him and his service of us. We delight in being bound to him, which is true freedom. And we beg of you that we may then uh, live out our lives in, in devotion and worship to you and, and uh, not fear and so trust ourselves to idols or superstitions or human power, even human religious power, um, but instead uh, be confident in you. And insofar as any of us do have power of our own, may we use it to serve others, may we give away power and distribute power uh, and point to you ultimately as the judge of all the earth. Mm. And we pray this. Oh, we thank you for the food we're about to enjoy in the evening that we can continue to enjoy now. Thank you for providing for us in so many ways, in food, in safety, in friendships, um, in this fellowship that we enjoy across uh, churches um, here at the Uni Fellowship. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 amen.